All right, well, this morning we're going to be back in um, the end of John chapter 13, uh, where Ben was last week, and moving into the beginning of John chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then, um, and then we'll dive into that. Um, but let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity we've had to be together already this morning and, and sing together, be together, worship together. God, I pray now that as we move into a time of um, talking about your word and hearing from your word, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us that which you would have us hear. God, I pray that as we look at your word, as we dive into this, God, that you would create in us a longing to be connected to you, a longing to know you, a longing to be with you. God, that you would draw us to yourself. God, I pray Jesus would be lifted high in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and Christ alone. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. We'll come back to John shortly, uh, but where I actually want to start this morning is uh, at the end of the story, uh, something that the same John wrote, Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I believe that part of what the beginning of the whole story tells us in the book of Genesis is that God has always intended to have a place where he can dwell with his people. Or to use another word, um, that John uses in the gospel uh, to abide with his people. Part of the purpose of creation, I believe, was for God to have a place to dwell with his people. And uh, where the whole story of God and redemption ends in Revelation is with a new creation, a new city where God is dwelling with his people. The, the whole story starts with God creating a place to dwell with his people. And Revelation ends with God creating again in order to dwell with his people. The story starts with the creation and the story ends with creation. With God and people dwelling together in the way that God always intended. Physically together. In an embodied way on a renewed and redeemed earth. Revelation 21 goes on to say this in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I want you to hold on to that verse and keep that verse in your mind this morning as we move forward through John, because I think it actually informs what's going on throughout John 13 and 14, really throughout the rest of John. 
Throughout the rest of John, throughout John as a whole, throughout the New Testament, really, there's this idea that Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth come together. If the tabernacle and the temple were the places where God would be dwelling with his people according to what we see in the Old Testament, well, then one of the themes of the book of John is that Jesus is replacing the temple. Jesus is the new and better temple. Jesus is the place where God and mankind meet and abide with one another and dwell together and live together. If you're looking for a fuller um, treatment of that concept or a fuller understanding of that idea, the book of Hebrews deals with it very explicitly. But John does so as well. And the reason I wanted to start with this passage or this idea from Revelation is because, like I said, I think it sort of... um, helps us see John 13 and 14 in the right context. What we're about to read from the end of John chapter 13 and the beginning of John 14 um, has some of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture, I think. But like we often do here at Redemption, I want us to look at these verses in the proper context and maybe put aside for a moment any preconceived notions we have about the passage or what we think it's about. And I want us to see it for what it is, for what John intended, for what Jesus intended. And so with that said, I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to read from John chapter 13, verse 36 through John 14, 14. Um, It's a big block of verses with a lot going on. But I'm going to ask you to hang in there with me as we hear God's word. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's a lot going on in these verses, there is Peter's well-known proclamation that he will never deny 
Jesus and Jesus reminding him or telling him, not reminding him, but telling him that uh, before morning comes, you will have already denied me three times. We have Jesus' words about going away to prepare a place for his disciples. Words that have been used to build all sorts of ideas about mansions and glory, even though the actual word used by Jesus has nothing to do with a mansion or even uh, anything like it. And we have Jesus' oft-quoted statement that he is the only way to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life. We see Philip asking Jesus to show him the Father and Jesus responding that I've been with you all along. Have you, how have you not seen the Father? You've, you've been seeing the Father through me this whole time. And finally, we have Jesus' words at the end of the passage about asking anything in his name and being done. Of all that we see in this passage in reference to that last part, I'll just say that this idea comes up again and again throughout this book. So I'm not really going to address it this morning. We will get into it in the coming weeks. Um, so our focus will be a little uh, above those final couple of verses, like I said, just because we'll be dealing with them again in the coming weeks. But what I want to do at this point is sort of get to the heart of the passage, to get right to what Jesus is talking about. And in order to do that, I think we have to address what Jesus means when he says things uh, about going away to prepare a place. Let me read the first few verses again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. I think what we normally hear in these words is something along these lines. That Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going away to heaven to prepare a dwelling place for his followers when they die. And one day when he comes back, he'll take his followers to heaven to dwell with him there. I think there's actually a whole lot more going on in this passage than that. Um, if you look back through the book of John, do you know where else it is in John that Jesus uses the words, my father's house? It's in John chapter 2. And it's there that as Jesus is driving the money changers out of the temple, flipping over tables, he refers to the temple as my father's house. So it's not so much that Jesus is talking about getting believers out of here to a place as he is talking about getting believers to the person where heaven and earth meet. If the temple was the place where heaven and earth met and God dwelled there previously, well, now Jesus is talking about people getting to him, the person. He's the new temple. He's the place where heaven and earth meet. If you remember what this whole discourse in John 13 and moving forward is about, 
Jesus is talking to his disciples and his closest friends in the hours leading up to his death. He's preparing them for what's coming. And John 14 begins in verse 1 with, he, with him telling them not to be troubled, but to instead trust him. He calls them to faith and trust again in verse 11. And why does he call them to faith and trust? It's because they are about to be in despair at his death. And so Jesus is preparing them and he's telling them exactly where he's going. He's going to the cross. And at the cross, he's going to make a way for heaven and earth to meet in a whole new way. In some sense, I think that Jesus is saying that all the preparations that need to be made for heaven and earth to meet at the cross, well, they're not done yet. It's not all the way prepared. The way to get to God's presence is not all the way prepared. Sin has not yet been atoned for. Jesus is the Lamb of God about to be slain, but it hasn't happened yet. Death and sin is yet to be defeated. But Jesus is about to give his life to defeat those things, our greatest enemies. So he's telling his disciples exactly where he's going so that they can see the purpose behind it all. And they can't go to the cross. Only Jesus can. Jesus is the only one who can make a way to get to God. Because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. At the end of the story in Revelation that we looked at a moment ago, there's no need for a temple because the lamb that was slain is there in the new heaven, in the new earth, and the new city. Right? The gospel story is not that Jesus died to get us out of this world into heaven where we can live in mansions of glory. The gospel story is that Jesus is making all things new. He's redeeming his people. He's redeeming his creation. And he's making a way for God and people to dwell together in a whole new way. And he is the means by which that happens. And he is the place where that happens. I think it's true of Western Christianity that over... Uh, the years that it has developed, there has been this inordinate um, focus on salvation is just about getting God's people to heaven. And in some, re in some ways, I get that. Because life isn't always great. And there are people that are oppressed all the time. And there are people who suffer injustice. And there are people who want to get out of this world because this world is not great. But I think when we make Christianity just about getting people to heaven, we're missing the bigger story. That God's intention is to dwell with his people in a whole new way, to redeem all things, and to be with his people forever. I say all this to make the point that what's happening in this passage is an invitation to be a part of God's household. That's what this really is. It's an invitation to be a part of his family, to dwell with and abide with God even after Jesus is no longer physically present.
present on earth, knowing that we are moving towards this redemption and recreation of all things where Jesus will be present. Jesus has told his disciples and his friends that he's going to prepare a place for them, that he's going to make a way for them. And in doing so, Jesus becomes the way that you get to God, that you get to the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He opens the way, and he is the way. He confirms the truth, and he is the truth. He purchases life for us, and he is the source from which our life flows. Like I said a moment ago, this passage is not about a place as much as it is about the person of Jesus and Jesus enabling us to dwell with God forever. Jesus being the place where heaven and earth meet. Listen to verse 3 all over again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. If you're looking for um, songs or music about this very passage, Rich Mullins uh, has a great song that I can't read this passage without thinking of, that where I am, there you may be also. But this idea that Jesus will come again and take you to himself, that's the most important phrase in this passage, I will take you to myself. The focus is singularly on Jesus. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, the essence of what he's saying is something like this. I'm going to die for you. And on Easter morning, I'm going to defeat death for you. All so that I myself might be your living, dwelling place. The place where heaven and earth meet. This passage of scripture doesn't show that when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he will take you to heaven. It does not say that, and it's not about that. It says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus comes again, the focus will not be on getting somewhere. The focus will be on uniting with Christ the way that God intended. The overall point of this passage is about being united to Christ. It's about being with Jesus both now and when he comes again and the ways in which Jesus has made that possible. There's a lot here that we could dive into further. We could break this passage down verse by verse and do an exhaustive examination of it all over several weeks. But of utmost importance for us right now in this moment is to see that this passage is calling us to a life with Christ, a, a union with Christ, simply being with Jesus, the place from which our life flows. A couple of weeks ago when I preached through um, John chapter 12, I spent some time asking questions of the passage uh, in order to give us some takeaways over the coming weeks, as our missional communities kick back, um, get back in gear and start meeting again, during those times of gathering, we'll be doing some of the same things, asking 
questions of these passages that we're preaching through, talking through what we heard during the sermons, figuring out what these passages have to teach us about being with God. And so that's what I want to do again for a moment this morning, hopefully to help us all begin thinking in that direction. So the four questions I'll ask of this passage is this, who is God? What does he do? What does it say about who we are? And how then should we live? So first, who is God? In verse 8, we see Philip ask Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus' response is this. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, you want to see the Father? Look at me. In fact, six times in verses 7 through 11, Jesus says the same thing, that he and the Father are so profoundly one that his presence is the presence of God, the Father. In verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. Verse 7 again, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And even though Jesus doesn't spell it out, part of the implication of what Jesus is saying is that God is actually knowable. God's not a puzzle to be figured out because he's right there with them. He's present with them. And even though verses 16 and 18 we haven't uh, read yet or really dealt with, I'm going to read them. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. The point being that even when Jesus is physically gone, Jesus is telling his disciples, God will still be knowable because Jesus is enabling that through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, the helper who is coming to his followers. Who is God? He's our knowable, heavenly Father. Second, what does, this, what does God do? And this passage is very explicit about what God does. Through the work of Jesus, he's preparing a way for heaven and earth to meet, for God and man to dwell together in the way that God intended. I mean, it is explicit that that is what Jesus is doing. He's doing away with the temple and the sacrifices and the old ways of meeting God and making a new way, and that new way is literally through Jesus himself. I've talked about this repeatedly leading up to these takeaways, so I won't belabor, belabor the point. But please see that in preparing a way for us, in preparing a room for us, Jesus is inviting us to be a part of God's household, to be a part of his family, to dwell with him and abide with him both now and forever. So third, what does this passage say about who we are? Well, God's people, people who have put their faith in Christ and believed in him, like verses 1 
and 11 of chapter 14 call us to. We are the people who are part of God's family, people who are connected to Jesus and joint heirs with Christ. God is our Father, our Father who is knowable and present, not distant and absent and unknown. Romans 8 puts it this way, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into a fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does this passage say about who we are? It says that we are intimately connected to Christ in a whole new way because of Jesus' work. For those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, who have not yet trusted Christ as Jesus calls his followers to do in verse 1 and 11, God has prepared a way for you to meet him. He's actually done the work. So the invitation for you is to meet Jesus at the cross. And there become part of God's family. The good news of this passage is that Jesus has already acted on your behalf. And he did that willingly. And he would do it again. And so what it says about you, if you haven't believed in Christ, it says that Jesus is at the cross, ready to receive you, and ready to give you life in a whole new way. Finally, how then should we live For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Jesus' work on our behalf has enabled us to live from a place of deep trust, to have a deep sense of peace because of his ever-steady faithfulness. Like Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Our hearts need not be troubled because there's a place for you, for me, for others In our Father's house, let not your heart be troubled because Jesus has already prepared the place for you. He opened the way to get there. He is the way. Let not your heart be troubled because Jesus himself is your dwelling place and he will come and take you to himself. Let not your heart be troubled because Jesus and the Father are one so that if you have Jesus, you have the Father, the Father who is knowable, Father who will make you his child, who has made you his child. Let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus has asked the Father to give you the Holy Spirit to be with you now, to be with you always, not as an observer simply pointing out your flaws and troubling your conscience, but as a helper sent by Jesus, helping you to live with God. So the call for us is simple. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, come and meet him at the cross. If you come to meet Jesus at the cross, he'll be there waiting for you. And if you do know Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled. Instead, trust Jesus. That everything about him and his ways and that life that he offers is better. We're going to enter into a time of response this morning. Um, And I would ask that as we enter into a time of response that you continue uh, to think about and uh, dwell on the things that
God might be speaking to your hearts and minds this morning. What God has shown us about Jesus and what he does and how he's enabled us to live with him in a whole new way. The band's going to come back up in a second and uh, lead us in some more songs and give us the opportunity to worship. But before we do that, we have an opportunity to take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption as a physical way to uh, remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. So if you're here and a follower of Jesus, whether you're a member of Redemption or not, we would invite you to come down the middle aisle, take uh, the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. And so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and um, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue on in that time of response. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. God, thank you for the way in which you have prepared a place, a person, a way for us to meet you, to live with you, to dwell with you, to, to be with you. God, I pray that that truth would ring true in our hearts and minds this morning. The reality of your work on our behalf would grip us with the reality of your love. The reality of the fact that, God, you were that you are for us, that we are your children. God, I pray even now as we continue to worship by taking communion, God, I pray that the reality of your work on our behalf would ring true in our hearts and minds as well as we take this bread and dip it in the wine or juice and so remember your sacrifice for us, the way that you've won a great victory for us over Satan's sin and death. God, I pray that you would continue to meet us in this place. You would continue to draw us to Jesus. You would be honored and glorified and that there would be great joy among your people. God, I ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.